So this message is uh, from seven years ago. I preached this at the Chinese church on 28th of December, 2013. <laughs> and it's entitled, Those Who Hear Will Live, based on John chapter 5, verses 1 to 30. Those who hear will live. In today's passage, Jesus heals a guy whom I can only describe as pathetic and a bit of a jerk. Jesus heals him. Now, in case you think I'm being too hard on this guy, let me just say that he and I have a lot, I'm sorry, have a lot in common. I love making a big deal about my problems. I can talk about my problems all day long. Some of us do that in a group. We call it a prayer meeting. We go round and round and talk about all the bad stuff that's happened to us this week, complaining about our boss, our doctor, our spouse. And when we finally do pray in the last few minutes, we even complain about God. Oh Lord, why don't you fix this situation I'm in? You know, well, that's me, honestly. And maybe that's some of you as well. You know, and that's definitely this guy that we meet here in John chapter 5 and verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. It's, it's a strange scene. What we have here is a swimming pool for sick people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, verse 3. So it's not exactly Cambridge Parkside Community Pool. These sick and paralyzed guys, they sit around the pool all day long. They're not there for a game of water polo. Uh, John tells us that the pool is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And archaeologists have actually dug up this pool called Bethesda. So it's a real place in Jerusalem. There is a covered walkway that goes around all the four sides of the pool and one walkway that goes right across the middle of the pool. So that from above, it looks like a figure eight, like the digital eight on your old Casio watch. Now these walkways provided shelter for the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed people who were sitting in the sun all day long. And it's not a very pleasant place to be. These guys, they can't exactly go to the toilet anytime they want. And they just sit there all day long. It's a stinky place to say the least. But why were they there? Well, if you look at verse 4, you notice something interesting. Uh, verse 4 is missing. <laughs> verse 4 is not there in most manuscripts, which means it probably isn't in the Bible. Somewhere down the line, someone thought it would be a good idea to add verse 4 to explain what is going on with all these sick people sitting around the pool all day. And you'll find that in your footnotes. You see verse 4 in your footnotes, which says, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each of such disturbances would be cured of whatever disease he had. Every now and then, they believed that God would cause the water to bubble up. And when that happened, the first guy into the pool, uh, he won the lottery. You know, whatever disease he had, you know, blindness, paralysis, whatever. If he was the first one in, he was healed. Uh, we don't know if that's the real story, but it does kind of explain why they're there. But Jesus, he comes to this place that's filled with sick people who all have a story, who all have needs. But Jesus chooses to heal just one guy, this guy, this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Verse 5, one who had been there had been invalid, invalid, for 38 years. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? That's a strange question to ask a guy who's been not being able to use his legs for 38 years. Do you want to get well? You don't go to a cancer ward and talk to the guy lying on the bed with five tubes sticking out of his body and say, do you want to get well? Of course he wants to get well. That sounds like a silly question. That sounds like an insensitive question. Of course he wants to get well. But for those of us who have been here at the Chinese church, you know, we've been studying this gospel of John, you know, for the last couple of months. You know, I think we've come to expect this from Jesus, this kind of surprising question when he meets someone new. You know, we tend to expect Jesus' opening words to be something profound. You know, I'm the light of the world, or I'm the resurrection and the life. And Jesus, he does say that. And in this same gospel, I might add. But Jesus, he always begins, when he first meets someone, he always begins by dealing with their expectations. So he says, what do you want to these two guys who want to sign up as his followers? Or he says, woman, what, why do you involve me? He says that to his mom. <laughs> or um, can you get me a drink? He says to this Samaritan woman at the well, and he provokes this scandalous response. Each time, Jesus deals with our expectations first, what we really think of him, what we expect for him to do for us, what we've read about him in Time magazine, before revealing who he really is, before uh, telling us in his own words and in his own terms what he's come to do. And he needs to do that because all of us, all of us, we have baggage. All of us have these preconceived ideas about Jesus, whether it's positive or negative. And he says to this man, paralyzed, 38 years, do you want to get well? It's a good question because the man's answer to that question, it says a lot about his expectations from the people around him. Look at verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied. Is it invalid? Invalid? Invalid replied. He replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else gets in before, before me, ahead of me. His problem, according to him, is the people around him. There's no one to help him in to the pool, and someone else gets in first. That's his story. It's never his day. Someone else always wins. No one ever helps him. That's the reason he's been stuck in this situation for 38 years. He sounds bitter. He sounds miserable. He sounds as if he's given up. So when Jesus asks him, do you want to get better? Instead of saying yes, or instead of saying getting angry with the question, of course I would get better. Um, what does he do? He complains about the people around him. My life is so unfair, he says. Friends, why are you here today? <laughs> the church, you know, it is a gathering of sick people, of broken people. And yes, you should come to the church expecting people around you to be gracious and compassionate towards your needs. But is it possible that you've turned up today just to complain, just to get attention, just to feel sorry for yourselves? You know, like I said before, he, this guy and I, we have a lot in common. I can talk about my problems all day long. And do you know where I get to do that the most? Here in church. It is tempting to use the time we have here at Bible studies, you know, at prayer meetings, at Sunday meetings as a form of therapy. 
Yes. Instead of, you know, instead of getting better, we become more and more bitter. And that's because God is kind of like our heavenly psychologist who doesn't do anything for us. He just sits back and he asks us, you know, how are we feeling today? But that's not what Jesus is doing. When he says, do you want to get well? It's not an invitation for us to whine and complain about our day. Jesus is offering to completely, completely change our lives. And you know, he, he could have talked to anyone else at that pool on that day, yet he chose to focus on this guy, this man who needed his help, yet this man who wasn't looking for any help. All this man wanted was attention and a chance to feel sorry for himself. Out of all the sick people, people Jesus could have talked to that day, Jesus chose this man. Jesus chose to heal this man. Verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, this man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Instantly and completely, this man is healed. There is no recovery period. At once, the Bible says, this man was cured. There is no physiotherapy involved. He is strong enough to pick up his mat and to walk. And all Jesus has to do is to say, get up to say the word. Jesus commands this man to rise up. And he does. Jesus gives this command and his power to heal, you know, to completely restore this man from 38 years of paralysis. That power lies in the authority of his word. But after that, this guy who's just been healed doesn't stop to thank Jesus. He doesn't even know his name. In fact, what we see next is this guy going out of his way to get Jesus into trouble for healing him in the first place. Verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you uh, to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. This man you know, gets into trouble with the authorities, the Jewish rabbis, they say to him, hey, you're breaking the law of the Sabbath, by which you mean, they mean you shouldn't be carrying your mat around on this day, on the Sabbath day. Now, this Sabbath day is holy in the Jewish religion. It was a day when God said, you shall do no work. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Breaking the Sabbath was breaking God's law. And the religious police were threatening to punish this man for his crime. What does this man have to say in his defense? It's not my fault. That's what he says. This guy, that guy who healed me, he made me do this. Seriously, that's what he does in verse 11. He points the finger at Jesus. And the thing is, he doesn't even know Jesus's name. That's why he calls him the man who made me well. <laughs> Verse 12, so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed, it says there, had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd who was there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and Jesus said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So what happens? Jesus looks him up again in the temple. What does the man do? 
he reports Jesus to the authorities. Hey, you know the guy you're looking for? You know, who told me to break the law on the Sabbath? I saw him in the temple and his name is Jesus. It doesn't sound as if this guy is very grateful to Jesus for healing him. He's kind of doing the same thing he's always been doing. He's complaining about the people around him, blaming others for his pain. Jesus got me into trouble. Why did you have to heal me on all days of the Sabbath? Why did you have to tell me to carry my mat? I was minding my own business, you know, sitting by the pool when he came and turned my life upside down. But I wonder, but I wonder if the reason why he was so upset was because of something that Jesus said to him at the temple in verse 14. He says, See, you are well. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Who does Jesus think he is, you know, telling me not to sin, warning me about something worse that will happen? What does he know about my life? I have been suffering for 38 years. He thinks he can say some magical words and then he can tell me how to live my life. Now, I want to be careful about what I say about this connection between sin and suffering, about what the Bible teaches us about the consequences of our sin. It's not always a one-to-one -one correlation, as if you sin, therefore you will suffer for this pain. That's, that's the mistake the religious leaders make in chapter 9, in John, John, John chapter 9, when they say to the blind man, you were steeped in sin at birth. They were saying God was punishing him with blindness. Yet in that same chapter 9, you know, Jesus says about the same man, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happens so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. It's not always the case that pain, illness, and tragedy are a result of personal wrong, personal sin. And Jesus actually warns us about making that kind of connection. Uh, elsewhere in Luke chapter 13, he refers to this incident of a tower that collapsed in uh, Siloam. And he says, do you think they were more guilty than those who were living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. But here in John chapter 5, Jesus, he does make that connection between this man's sin and his paralysis. Stop sinning, Jesus says to him, or something worse may happen to you. This 38 years of paralysis you've been through, that's, that's bad. But there is something worse, Jesus says, that God can do to you if you continue to rebel against him. Now remember, Jesus has just healed him you know, of his paralysis. So this warning, it comes in light of an amazing display of grace, of mercy. But this healing was not an end in and of itself. The healing was a sign to turn back to God in repentance and in faith. And this is not a case of manipulating someone in a painful, vulnerable situation. You know, go to church, give your money, and then God will heal you. No, this guy is already healed. This guy has already had his slate wiped clean. No more problems, no more pain, no more suffering. And yet here is this guy who is so blinded by his sin, not because of his pain, but because of his prosperity. Because of his prosperity. You know, people today who claim we need to have more faith in God in order for God to heal us, who claim we need to have more faith in God in order for God to do miracles in our lives, you know, this passage says they're clearly wrong in their understanding about the purpose for healings and miracles in the Bible. This man has zero faith that Jesus healed him. 
This man, as far as we can tell, was not a Christian when he was sitting by that pool in Bethesda, yet Jesus healed him. Why? Because that healing was not an end in and of itself. Meaning, if all you want Jesus to do is to heal you from your physical suffering, frankly, you have no idea who Jesus is. Jesus has come to heal us from a more serious condition, something worse than 38 years of paralysis that this man suffered. Jesus has authority to raise the dead to life. Now, you will have to bear with me a moment because the way in which Jesus raises us from death to life, it comes only at the end of this section. It's important not to skip this middle bit because this middle bit, you know, tells us who we are dealing with. It's kind of like the man who was healed had no idea who was dealing with. We need to know who we are dealing with before we can truly say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. Please raise me. <laughs> Otherwise, like this man, we might walk away thinking we are blessed when we are not walk away thinking we are getting better, only we become more bitter. We need to hear what Jesus has to say about himself, and it's in this section. And to put it very simply and quickly, Jesus says he has come to do his Father's work. Verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Remember that the Jews were really upset about the Sabbath law being broken by this guy carrying his mat. But it looks as if this guy has successfully deflected the attention towards Jesus. You know, Jesus, he's the troublemaker. It's his fault, not mine. So the, Jesus, the issue that Jesus is dealing with here is the Sabbath law, which says you shall do no work, which God says you shall do no work. And how does Jesus answer that? Now, Jesus does not answer the way that many of us think we, he would answer. You know, we would be tempted to say to the religious leaders, you know, you're being too extreme. You know, you've misread the law. You know, the Sabbath, you know, was a command to stop work, you know, not carry not to stop carrying mats you know god meant for us to lay down our tools to cease from our labor what the religious leaders had done was come up with these additional rules uh, specifically 39 additional descriptions of work and one of these descriptions was carrying something in public you can carry actually anything you can carry in you know, your cornflakes you can carry your ipad if you carry it in your home but if you carry it out in public that's work according to their stipulation. You're transporting an item from one place to another. And, and so, you know, it's, you know, that's too extreme. And Jesus could have said that, but he didn't say any of that. And neither does Jesus argue for acts of mercy. You know, he does that in Matthew chapter 12. You know, acts of mercy, Jesus says there it's lawful. Uh, to do good on the Sabbath, you know, healing people, helping them get well, you know, and, and, and you know, that's okay and that's allowed on the Sabbath, but Jesus doesn't say that over here. What does Jesus say here in John chapter 5? He says, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Meaning, instead of breaking the command, Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling the command of the Sabbath. Why do you have the Sabbath? Because God gave the Sabbath uh, in the Ten Commandments, yes, 
but also earlier on in creation, God finished his work in six days of creating the world, and then he rested on the Sabbath, according to Genesis. And therefore, Sabbath is a fulfillment of God's work. Like when you finish that work, you finish that project, you finish that assignment, or you finish that Xbox game. <laughs> and then you go, oh, what an achievement. And you go and drink your Pepsi and you look at your scores with, you know, with, with, with satisfaction. And that's, that's accomplishment. That's what God did when he saw creation finish. He said, that's good. That's very, very good. God sat back. He looked at his creation on the seventh day and he said, it's very good. But the fact that Jesus says, my father is always at work, means God is still working, but towards a final ultimate goal. That is the new creation. And the Sabbath is a hint of that amazing thing that is still to come. And Jesus says, that is what I was sent to do, to finish my father's work. And very quickly, he gives us four implications of that working relationship with his father in the following verses. God's pattern, God's passion, God's power, and God's judgment. These four things. Firstly, God's pattern. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, when Jesus is healing this paralyzed man, he's not just being a doctor but he's bringing in a new age when all death, all decay will be removed from God's creation. And essentially what Jesus is doing here is imitating his father's work in redemption. That's the first thing. Secondly, God's passion. And this is his passion for his son, his love for his son. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. God wants all his glory to go to Jesus. And that's why he sends him into the world. So that, verse 23 says, all may honor the son as they honor the father. And this uh, honor language is a language of inheritance. Jesus is almost taking over his father's business. Oh, sorry. Thirdly, God's power is seen in the resurrection. Verse 21. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so, the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. And all this relates to the fourth implication, God's judgment in verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. This is the Father handing over all his authority to raise the dead, to pronounce judgment, to grant life, to grant forgiveness. He hands it all over to Jesus, his Son. And if you see these four implications, of Jesus doing the Father's will, doing the Father's work as his son, you can start to understand how this fits in with our response to him. What did Jesus expect the paralyzed man to do when he healed him? What does Jesus expect us to do today as we read these words in the Bible? He wants us to hear, to hear these words. Now listen to verse 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. 
and he has granted him authority to judge because he is the son of man. These words, notice, are all in the present tense. Whoever hears my words, he has crossed over from death to life. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear, when those who hear will live. What does Jesus want us to do today, present tense? To hear his word and to live. He raises us from the dead. Those who have crossed, uh, those who here have, been, have crossed from death to life. That is something that happens and can happen right now if we hear his words today. Now, later on, Jesus does make the distinction with what will happen on the last day. And this is verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the grace will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned on the last day. Jesus will come again, and all will hear his voice. They'll say, John, get up. Calvin, rise up. And good and bad will all hear his voice. And by the way, that word rise, as in rise to live, or rise to be condemned, are the exact same words that Jesus says to the paralyzed man. Rise up, take up your mat, and walk. It's the command that speaks life to the dead. Not even death will, pre pre will prevent us from facing Jesus on that last judgment day. That's what it's saying. And the question is, will you hear his voice today? I tell you the truth, Jesus says in verse 24, whoever hears my voice and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. To hear this word, to believe in God, there are not two separate responses. To hear is to believe. Jesus says, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me. He's saying, to trust his word, what he says, is to trust God who sent him. His voice, in other words, is God's voice. He speaks with all of God's authority. And when we gather on a Sunday like this to hear the Bible read, we are hearing Jesus. We are listening to God speaking to us today. And that is so important because here Jesus is speaking to a group of people religious leaders who think they can trust in God's word on the Sabbath by ignoring what he says about the Sabbath. He's talking to a man who is so aware about his physical suffering, but blind to his spiritual condemnation. And he says to him, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Jesus says all this only to be ignored by the very person he has healed. My father is at work and so am I, Jesus says to the religious leaders who then become more determined to persecute him, to kill him, than to nail him to the cross. Here's a guy in a temple. Here are leaders in, of God's people all thinking they're doing God's will by ignoring God's word, ignoring God's son. And you know, we are no different. I say to you very soberly, we are no different unless we strive to make this word, to make this Bible, to make God's word the very center of who we are and what we do here in the Chinese church. You know, 
if, if not, otherwise we will be no different from these pathetic religious men. We will be tempted to make a big deal about our problems. You know, when times are tough, we will whine, we'll complain. When times are good, we'll ignore God's word. We won't repent. Only God's word can speak life to the dead. Only God's son can rise us, can raise us from the dead. Meaning, make this word the center of who we are, of all that we do. God is speaking to us today, right now. He is speaking to you about his son in his word. And these words are words of eternal life. Jesus says in verse 25, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live.